Come on, this is a brand new day. Today is a gift from God. It is a gift from Him to you, and He has given you this today. What will you do with it? How will you respond to it? How will you, how, how will you worship Him today in that day? How will, you, how, how will you respond to what God wants to say to you? Today is a new day. Yesterday is gone. You can't do anything about that. And that's why God says his mercies are renewed each and every day. His mercies are renewed because he wants you to understand that today is the day that he's given you as a gift. And we should rejoice and be glad in it. That's not always easy to do, is it? Sometimes I think rather than get up in the day and just choose to start with rejoicing, we get up and say, oh, let me first see what happens. I'll rejoice when I find something worth rejoicing in. And the truth is, is that when we have Jesus, you always have something to rejoice in. So this is a new day. It's a day when God wants you to receive something new. He wants you to, to be imparted by something that is new in your life. And God wants you to learn. He wants you to be taught. He wants you to grow. He wants you to leave different than you came in. Because he loves you. You know, isn't it cool? God loves us so much that he accepts us just the way we are. And he loves us so much that he's not willing to leave us that way. So what will you do with today? Will you receive what God wants to say to you? Yeah, I'm just, I'm, again, after last week, I'm just glad y'all came back. <laughs> Let me say, I do not set out to try to offend anybody. I love you too much to hold back on something that might offend you. Thank you. So, you know, if, if you get mad about something that's said, I, I understand that. I do. I, I understand that. But take it into the Word of God and find out what God is saying. Is it truth or not? Is God wanting to reflect truth? People send me messages all the time. Last week there was people taking bets on how many negative emails I would get. Hey, you know what? Well, well nobody won the bat because I didn't get any. So, you know, thank you, church. But again, so the challenge is this. If there's something that you don't agree with or don't like or something, find it in the Word of God. Find out what God says. And if it doesn't go with the, not what I'm talking about or saying, then let me know. I've told you before, I'm not looking to be right. I want to be righteous. Amen. So we tried our best to rightly divide the word of God. And you know what? Sometimes that's difficult. Because it's not always what people want to hear. So open to Revelation chapter 2. We're going to finish up actually this letter to the church at Pergamum. Last week, I talked to you about the church at Pergamum. If you weren't here, please go back and listen to the sermon from last week because there's a lot of historical information that really does mean a lot in the context of the sermon. There's a lot that, that, that happened that, that was relevant to, to that time because of what was going on. Now, again, a lot of things are relevant to today because a lot of what was going on then are things that are going on just looks a little different, but it's the heart of the same Ill, is, uh, issues that we face today. So the city of Pergamum is where he's sending this letter. This is from John, the apostle John, who receives from 
from the resurrected, glorified Christ on Patmos, this word that he wants to bring to the church. And this is the letter to the church, or to the angel at the church at Pergamum. And it says this in verse 12. And to the angel of the church at Pergamum, in Pergamum write, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Okay, the, the, the word of Jesus. He's got the sharp two-edged sword. And he goes on and he says, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Again, pretty strong comment. Yet you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness. Again, Antipas, and we talked about him last week, he was slow cooked in a big brass bowl. That's how they killed him. And it says, Antipas was killed among you, again, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam was the, an Old Testament prophet, and Balaam was hired by King Balak to bring a curse against the people of Israel. So King Balak hired this Israelite prophet to curse the people of Israel, and he decided he would do it. And when he came to declare the curse, God just switched things around on him, and he wasn't allowed to give a curse over the people. He declared actually a blessing. But what did happen was Balaam taught King Balak how to infiltrate the people of Israel. You know, if you can't beat them, join them. And so he taught them how to join Israel them in, uh, in, in, in Israel. And so Balaam was filled with, again, the teachings of Balaam were all sorts of false teachings, all sorts of different idol worship, and included sexual sins. And so Balaam, he said, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So God saw all that. And in verse 15, he also, he, so he also, you have some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans, they were, um, again, not a big group of people, but it was uh, uh, what I would call a cult. They were a group of people that claimed themselves to be Christians, but they had been uh, indoctrinated where they begun to join together the teachings of Christianity with cultural traditions, with cultural things that were happening at the time, and they combined this whole thing with idol worship and sexual practices that were involved in worship. As I was reading through this and studying the the Nicolaitans, one of the things that just came to my mind was the Nicolaitans, and I want want you to listen to this, because when when the descriptions that I read about this, um, what it reminded me of is the Nicolaitans, what they did was they made a palatable Christianity. Christianity that did not leave a bad taste in anyone's mouth. And so that was the teachings of the Nicolaitans. They, 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 they joined together Christianity and culture. And that's what went on. In verse 16, it says, Therefore, how many of you know what that's there for? <laughs> therefore, Repent. Why does repent always get a delayed amen? (laughs) Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, your word has been loosed in this place, and I pray that your word would do what only your word can. Lord, let your word do what I could never do. And I pray in the name of Jesus that you use this word to convict us. Use this word today, Lord, to teach us. Let, let this word train us. Let this word become part of us. Let this word, Lord God, be received with gladness. Let this word, Lord God, minister in our body, our soul, and our spirit. Lord God, today we commit ourselves to receive from you. So Lord, let the word be rightly divided. And Lord, if there's anything that's not of you, let it fall to the ground. Let it not hinder, let it not stop, let it not get in the way of anyone in their faith. But God, I pray that that which is of you, that it would continue to minister to our heart, our soul, and our mind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we talked about a few things last week. One, you can't read through this and not realize that Jesus is paying attention. That Jesus sees all these things that are going on. And, and what he sees in the church here, he sees in us. Which again, he knows what these people were doing. Church, Jesus knows what you're doing. Jesus knows what you're not doing. And he tells us here, and again, this is a letter to the New Testament church. He says that he has an opinion about that. He has an opinion about what you're doing and what you're not doing. And, and it's crazy, but, you know, I hate confrontation. But I, in reading the scriptures, yeah, it's just like, man, Jesus doesn't seem to mind confronting us. <laughs> It's like every time, just turn around and bam, he's confronting with something here. He knows what we're doing and he knows he's able and willing to confront us on that because he has an opinion about it. Everything. Uh, you know what you did? I, you know what? No, I don't, I don't like that. That's, and the reason he doesn't like it is because he knows it's not going to be good for you. It's going to hurt you. Stop touching the stove. It's hot. So, Jesus sees all these things that are going on. He sees their persecution. He sees that they're physically being harmed, that people are being killed. He sees Antipas, this man that was boiled, burned in a, in a slow cooker. He, he sees Satan's throne. He sees the kind of spiritual persecution that these people are causing, are, are living under, the kind of persecution that's coming in against their body, against their soul, against their spirit. He sees the kind of discouragement that may come. He sees all that, and he commends them for their faith. Even in the face of all that, you have remained faithful. But he rebukes them, and he brings this rebuke. And, and what we talked about last week was he, he rebukes their beliefs because he had allowed the purity of their Christian beliefs to be polluted by the culture and by false doctrine and false teachers and false religions, and they tried to, you know, combine these things together. And so he rebukes them on their beliefs because their beliefs lead to behaviors. Look, what you believe will dictate what you do. What you do truly dictates what you believe. 
So he rebukes them on that because they allowed the church to become polluted. And, he, and he, it's called an apostate church. Apostate church is, is again, a, a church that professes faith in one thing and doesn't practice it. So, this week, what I want to talk about today is how can we fall into that same trap? Oh, I could never fall into that trap. That's what the Nicolaitans, uh, or the, uh, the Pergamites said, I'm sure. We could never fall into that trap. Don't deceive yourself. You know, think about this. What's interesting is in, in Pergamum today, which Pergamum is Bergama, Turkey. In, in Bergama, Turkey, do you know there's not one church? Not one Christian evangelical church is there. There's not one Christian in the entire region. Church, the New Testament, much of the New Testament was written to or came from or was about what we see in, is modern-day Turkey. I mean, much of the gospel came from there. When, the, when the, the temple was destroyed, much of the Christianity spread into these places in Turkey. And, and much of we, what we see in the New Testament and the epistles and the writings come from this, these places in Turkey. Today, there are 74 million people in Turkey. And in all of Turkey, there's only about 3,500 evangelical Christians, which makes Turkey the most unchurched nation on earth. How did that happen? In that day, when this letter was written, this, this was the center of Christianity. This is where God was birthing new churches and new places out of ministry that was coming forth from them. Pergamum was a city that had an opportunity to be a place that would plant churches, a place that would do what God had called them to do, a place that would minister the gospel, a place that would be used in powerful ways for many, many years to come. And today, that's just not the case in Pergamum. It's not. At some point, church, and listen, at some point, the apostasy won. Now, I will not say that the gospel lost because the gospel doesn't lose. But at some point, apostasy won in the hearts of those that were there. And it transformed their beliefs their behaviors, and as a result today, there's no church, no Christians. Well, how could we fall into that same place? Because church, the moment we think that we can't is the moment the enemy has us. Well, again, some things that we can find out of the scripture is that, listen, is your one thing that we can uh, uh, use in our lives to allow us to fall into the same apostasy is your identity being formed more by Christ or the culture. And again, I, I know that you know, we, we receive this new identity in Christ, but today in your life, is your identity being formed more by the culture around you or the Christ in you? The Pergamites, these, they allowed their identity. They started off as Christians, many of them. He just, he just called them uh, and encouraged them for their faith. So obviously they allowed, many of them, their identity to be shaped primarily by the culture, more and more by the culture and less and less by Christ. 
It becomes easy to have happen in our lives when we follow after Jesus for a long time. It becomes really easy to begin to follow Christ in religious pattern rather than relationship that he has for us. We can tell others how they need a relationship with Jesus, yet we're following after religious patterns and really neglecting the relationship that we have with him. And so in Pergamon, they allowed their identity to be shaped mainly by the culture, which was filled with, and listen, sexual sin. Cultural perversion, religious pluralism, false religions, a, a general form of spirituality, which again, I talked about this a few, well, a couple months back now, but a general sense of spirituality, which again, if it's not of the Holy Spirit, it's not of the Spirit of God. And therefore, this general spirituality comes down to ultimately being demonism. Listen, we follow after the Holy Spirit. Amen. He is the one that we follow. And as Christians, even as Christians, if we come to this place where we make this decision, or, or even if it's just something that we allow, that who I am, that what I believe, that how I behave is going to be more shaped by culture than by Christ, then church, inevitably, we put ourselves on a path to apostasy. Amen? Yeah. And this is going to step on some toes, but it should. You want to go into apostasy? Number two, are you compromising sexually? Are you compromising sexually? Sex is an act of worship. I don't know if you know that or not. Sex is worship. There is nothing that shows the relationship between us and God in a physical way more than sexual relationships between a man and a woman. A joining together is one. A place that God uses that as a reflection in our lives. It's not just a physical thing. It's not just the physical thing that we as a culture have turned it into. See how the devil uses sex to pervert what God has given us as holy? So it's not just physical, it's spiritual. Listen to what Romans 12.1 says. He says to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Sex is an act of worship. And this is why I believe, and if you read through scripture, I know sin is sin is sin. That, you know, all sin separates us from God. But church, I mean, again, if you've ever done any kind of study in this area, I think you'll find that, wow, God sure seems to have a special hatred towards sexual sins. He does. And I believe that, again, this is the reason, because sex is an act of worship. It's worship in a marriage. I mean, there should be nothing that draws you closer to God. It's worship. And if you're compromising sexually, you are compromising spiritually. If you're being compromised sexually, you are being compromised spiritually. You may confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may confess that to be, but, but honestly, when you are acting outside of the guardrails of God's word in a sexual manner, you are compromising yourself and you are joining together with the enemy. You are dancing with demons. 
You're opening doors to things you don't want opened up because sexual sin is one way that we practice apostasy. We just don't necessarily like what he says about it. Why? Why don't we like that? Because it robs me of the pleasure of it. So again, you know, it does. It, 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 it's something that, that, again, we can confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but we can't do that while we're joining forces with the enemy. And, and it will, he will use, the enemy will use sexual sin to pervert and to take you into apostasy. Sexual sin will turn you away and start to draw you further and further and further and further from God. It is a hook that the enemy uses to put into our lives that we would turn from God and each go his own way. I know there are some who aren't going to like what I'm saying right now. But I'm just going to go ahead and say it. But my bet is that nine out of ten who don't like it are struggling in some way, shape, or form with sexual sin. All sorts of different things. I mean, are you living together outside of marriage? Are you sleeping together? Are you looking at porn and spending time online looking at things you know you shouldn't be looking at? Doing things you ought not do? Watching things you ought not watch? Saying things to, others, to, to the opposite sex or that you shouldn't do? Enter into different gay relationships that you shouldn't be entering into? Church, if so, you are on a path to apostasy. And, and he's declaring that here in this. Amen? Amen. I love you. <laughs> Third thing, are you compromising doctrinally? Do you compromise with doctrine? The Pergamites, what they said was, yes, we believe in Jesus. But there's some things in the word that are really difficult and controversial and unpopular. So we're going to reject those things and find teachers that will tell us that those things are okay. They'll tell us what we want. Because I'm looking for a form of Christianity when I can do those things that I want to do and not feel bad about it because I've got spiritual teachers that give me the green light. It's, it's, that's doctrinal compromising. Neglecting the doctrine. Listen, church, if you think that you're going to like everything you read in the Bible, man, you're going to have a problem. Because I don't know about you, but when I first started reading the Bible, there was a lot and lot, a lot of stuff I did not like. It was like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't like that. I, I, why? Because it kept telling me over and over and over again that I was wrong. And so what God tells us over and over and over again. And so we have got to make a decision that, you know what? I've got to change my mind about this stuff. 
there's these things that, man, I had my mind set on, but I got to change my mind because the Bible tells me something different. So we change our mind. We don't try to change God's mind. Church, and a change of mind means that we then change our behavior, which Jesus tells us to do when he says, repent. Repent. Word means to change your mind, to change your heart, to change your direction, to change your behavior, to change your belief, to change your life. That's what it means. Look, are there places in the Bible that you're just ignoring the truth? Are there places in the Bible that you're just putting your head in the sand and just pretending that's not God? Are there places in the word that you're just like flat out rejecting the truth? Compromising the truth? Let me tell you, if so, church, listen, you're on a slippery slope to apostasy. The, the fourth thing is, are you, just, is it, are, you, are you already at this point, are you already apostate? Meaning, are you someone who professes a faith and yet you're not practicing it? This will affect your life. You, you may, I said this last week, you, you, you may or may not be a Christian. I am not the one who decides that. I am not the one, please, that God's put in charge of that. You can all say, thank you, God, for that. He has not put me in charge of deciding who's in and who's out. I am not at all qualified to that. Only God, only Jesus can tell us who goes to heaven and who's not. He's the judge. He's the one who decides those things. But I can tell you that just because you are, your rear end is sitting in a seat in church does not mean you're going to heaven. Just because you were born into a Christian family does not mean you're going to heaven. The Bible tells us in Matthew 7 that there's many people who sat in church, many people who were born into homes, many people who worked in the church and did all sorts of things that Jesus says, I don't know you. Oh, again, I love you enough to tell you the truth because I want to make that hard to be any of you. Yes. Amen. Amen. Again, you can, you can think all you want. You can go with those directions. You can. But let me tell you that right now, no matter where you are, no matter what it is that you've done, no matter where these, these people in Pergamum, where they'd gone, what they'd done, how much they'd fallen, no matter where they were, you know what God said? Turn and come back to me. Come back to me. You can always come back to me. That's what he invites them to do. And church, I want you to know this morning in this brand new day that God has given us, he is inviting you to the same place. He is inviting you to turn and to come back to him. He invites you to come because he loves you and he cares about you. And he cares about your children. And he cares about your children's children. And he cares about your children's children's children. And he cares about every generation of legacy that he desires to see poured through you into those that are yet to come. And what happened is in Pergamum, getting back to the idea, in Pergamum, that if you look at the Acropolis now, there's not a Christian there. Not a, not a, these are the people that, that, I mean, they had tremendous ministry flowing from them. People that thought, that could never happen to us. This is a New Testament church. There's none there because they failed to confront 
apostasy. And eventually, apostasy won in the hearts of the people. And it was apostasy that was handed down from generation to generation. And church, that can happen in our church. That can happen in you. That can happen in your family. That can happen in me. That can happen in my family. That can happen in us. Look, we are, no more, we are not more than you know, a generation or two from the end of the forward progress of the gospel and the legacy of our families. It's all it takes. And, and again, much of that happens at the hand of biblical apostasy. We start to allow other things to be added to the word of God. We allow things to be taken away from the word of God because I don't like it. And it begins to affect our behaviors. It begins to affect our belief system and that sets us on a course for apostasy. So what do we do? I mean, great. Thanks for cheering us up, Pastor Mark. But what do we do? We do what Jesus says. Repent! Repent! Come on, repent. He says, therefore, repent. Oh, man, no, we're, what do we have to repent of? I'm sure that's what came out of so many of the thoughts and minds of the church in Pergamum. If we didn't have to repent, why does God tell us that we're to daily walk in the light? Why? Because there's always darkness there. There's always darkness that wants to cloud our thoughts, come into our lives, come in and, and begin to take us into things or to make us feel like nobody's watching. Well, let me tell you, nobody around you may know, but Jesus knows and he makes it very clear. He's aware of what you do and what you don't do. And he cares. He cares. But repentance means that we change our mind. It begins, repentance begins in our mind. We have to have these thoughts. You know, we get to this place where, you know, what I've been thinking is wrong. What, what I've been excusing is, is inexcusable. What I've been fighting with God about things that, that man, I, I, I mentally can't handle or things that I academically can't resolve. And I just need to stop fighting with God and I need to start trusting Him. I need to trust God. And repentance, listen, Jesus is inviting each and every one of us to repentance. Man. Repentance is, you know, it's kind of like when we talk about forgiveness. We all know we need it, but we just don't like it. One good way to thin the church out is to talk about repentance. We don't want to hear it. Well, why is that? Because repentance requires that you acknowledge you're wrong. You're wrong. And God's right. Yes. Now you can form that any way you want, but you'll never change the fact that you're wrong and God's right. Amen. He's never been wrong. And even in the church, we continually try to prove that he is by meaning something that would water down the gospel so that it makes it more of a palatable 
Christianity for us. Look, if you write nothing else down, write this down. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts that God has ever given us. Repentance is a gift that God has provided for you and for me. It's an opportunity each and every day, each and every moment. In everything that we do, God gives us this opportunity to repent. And it's an opportunity to go, in, go to God and, and to say, Lord, I'm going to stop doing what's wrong and I'm going to start doing what's right. Help me, Lord God. Empower me to do that. It's a place where we get the opportunity to stop believing what's wrong and to start believing those things that are right. It's a place where we get to stop stop walking away from Jesus and we get to turn and, and, and it's not even like at that point we follow him. It's we get to turn and walk with Jesus. Amen. Repentance is one of the most beautiful gifts that we will ever see given as Christians for us to walk in. That gift of repentance. But church, you will never walk in the gift of repentance without some humility. Because repentance means that you are going to say, you know what, God? And this may blow some of your minds, but God, I'm wrong and you're right. So God, I'll submit to you and I'll change. So many, we spend so much time trying to change God. We want, we want to change what God has said, we want to change what God has done, what God has given us. We want to change it because it becomes more palatable. And God says, you know, we're, I think that's why he tells us this. Um, hey, I'm God and I never change. You can try all you want, but I'm just going to send you around the mountain again. I'm not going to change my mind. And that is the essence of repentance. And it requires change of mind. And he says, then he says, and, and if not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. God's saying, I do not tolerate rebellion. I will not tolerate apostasy forever. And there will be consequences that come. Again, talking to the New Testament church. In that day, they understood it because the emperor held the sword. He had the sword of power. And in that day, the emperor who held the sword, he had, his ability was to say to this one, you get to live and to this one, you die. He held the sword of power in that day. And Jesus, he, in, the, in that culture, he's saying, I have the sword of power and I will come with the sword. I will come and do war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, again, we know today that more than likely, probably, most likely is talking about Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, he says, For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than two, any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then in Ephesians, he says, that it is the word of God, which is the sword, or the, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. 
And in verse 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so as a church, we are at spiritual war. We are in a spiritual war with cosmic forces. We are in a battle against Satan, and we are in a battle against the demons and the perversions and the lies and all of those things. And and the way in which the enemy works is through those lies. The greatest ploy the enemy gives is when he comes against the church with false religion, with palatable Christianity, with all sorts of false religions and false teachings and false doctrines and cultural perversions and sexual sins that come in and infiltrate the church. And God says, this is the weapon that I choose to do battle against error and apostasy and against the heresies that want to come against the church. It is the sword. It is the sword of the Spirit. It is the Scripture. It is the living Word of God. And in our lives, if we want to avoid apostasy and heresy, then we need to make sure that in all things we come back to the Word of God. That we don't try to change the Word, but we allow the Word to change us. We come back to the Word and we allow ourselves to hear the Scripture, to hear what God has to say, to hear what God wants to tell us. And he uses, again, a comparative to the sword for battle. So listen, when you are confronted with a lie, when you're told a lie, Come back and use the sword. It's an attack of the enemy. Come back and use the sword. You need to take the scripture and find out what the truth is. When you're being tempted to sin, you need to go back to the Bible and find out what the instruction is, what God says about that behavior. When you've done something wrong or you've done something that's sin or done something that you shouldn't do, said something you shouldn't do, you go back to the Bible and allow the Bible to bring correction to you. We use the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to allow God to bring spiritual victory into our life. That's what he uses. The Word is a sword, and he desires for us to use it, that we can find spiritual victories. That's what he gives it to us for. And he goes on, and he'll say, say that he gives them hidden manna. Verse 17 says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Did you know that God has hidden manna? Maybe you didn't, because... It's hidden. (laughs) Hey, in the days of the Israelites, you know, they were wandering in the desert. They wandered and wandered and wandered. And and do you know what God did? He gave them hidden manna. That manna, before it manifested, it was hidden. They had no idea what God was going to do. They had no idea where it was going to come from. They were out in the middle of the desert. And what did God do? He took the hidden manna and made it visible. He provided for them by providing manna. Manna, was, it was bread. Manna was a physical, real provision that God brought. It was hidden. It was in the heavens. The people had need, and what did he do? God brought the hidden manna, and he made it visible to them. And what God is saying here is, I got lots of hidden manna. If you'll trust in me, if you'll walk with me, if you'll be faithful to me, if, you, if you'll do those things, I'll take care of you. I know how to do that. I'll find a way to feed you. I got lots of hidden manna. If I got to supply it, if I got to have birds bring it to you, I'll bring it. I'll do it. I, there's no way that I can't because I'm God. I'll find a way to look out for you. Amen. But man, we live in a culture that is anti-Christian in that. We live in a culture that is filled with fear-mongering and anxiety. And, and we just get consumed in the fear that, but God, but what will I do? 
If I, if I don't stand up, if I don't compromise, what, what's going to happen to me? I'm going to lose my job. I won't have any provision. I don't have any security. I'll lose my possessions. And then, God, what will happen to me? Do you know what God says when we ask him that question? I'm glad you asked. I know exactly what's going to happen to you. He knows. He knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows exactly how he's going to provide for you. He knows exactly what's going to go on. I hope this is an encouragement for you. I hope that you do because God is saying in the scripture here, listen, if you'll be faithful and he's saying, I'll find a way to put bread on your table. I'll find a way for you to make ends meet. I'll find a way for you to work these things out because I want to take care of you. You know what? That was good news, and, um, and you guys didn't act like that was very good news. He goes on, he says, He who has an ear, to hear, uh, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, all seven churches got this same comment made in every single one of them, and Jesus says this over and over and over again. And he says that because what he's saying is that, listen, one of the ways in which we can become apostate in our behaviors, in our beliefs, is we stop listening to the Holy Spirit. Church, if we want to not be apostate, we have got to, as Jesus says, we have to continue to listen to the Holy Spirit. You have to allow, listen, the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us in a number of different ways, in a number of different places, in a number of different opportunities that he has in our life to do those things. Again, one of the ways we have to understand is the Holy Spirit is God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All of them, three, three distinct Makeups of one and all three with a purpose and plan and, and all three, God. And the Holy Spirit, he is the one, the Bible says, who inspired the entire word of God. Okay, he's the one who inspired that. He wrote it. Now, how did he have to do that? He didn't have to do it anyway. He could have done it like God. When Moses was up on the mountain, he could have wrote it with his fingertip into the rocks. But what he chose to do was he chose to release the inspired word of God and to have it written by men. And so church, one of the ways to keep, to, to, uh, uh, again, to not fall into apostasy is to keep your ear open to the Holy Spirit. Look, to get into the scriptures, and listen, to get into the scriptures enough to where the scriptures get into you. Amen. Where the scriptures begin to be a bigger, greater influence in your life than the things that are outside of you. When something goes on or something is said and, and, and you know, we don't like it and it goes off in our mind, but then all of a sudden the scripture that's in you goes, but I have said, thus saith the Lord. The scripture that's in us. The Holy Spirit speaks that way. But he also, the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us through prayer. And, and, and by stopping to listen to his small, still voice that he might speak through, that, that we would spend time talking with him. Because church, when you're hearing and listening and talking with the Holy Spirit, you are relating with God. 
It's a place that we relate with him, that we might be filled with the Spirit. God wants to seal us, but he wants to fill us. Are you, are you calling upon the filling of the Holy Spirit in your life that, God, you would bring fire, that you would bring power, that you would bring passion, that, God, you would bring change, that you would bring transformation in my life? Come and fill me, Lord God, fresh and new, with the power of your Spirit in my life. God, wash over me again and again and again that I might be filled with the Spirit so that I could be led by the Spirit just like Jesus was. This is what it is to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit who is God. He takes up residence in us and he begins to lead us and begins to guide us and begins to, as Christians, do for us just what he did for Jesus. You know, Jesus was baptized by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon him. And in the Gospel of Luke, we've talked about this, that Jesus was filled by the Spirit. That Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit. That Jesus being fully God, fully man, that place of man was filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible tells us. And so what he's saying here is, if you want to walk with Jesus, then you need to walk like Jesus. Listen, being a Christian means we are followers of Christ. And that means that we walk by the power of the Holy Spirit. We walk by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We keep our ears open. We listen to what he has to say. We listen to what the Spirit says to the church, to us. Are you relating to the Holy Spirit? And he goes on to say that he gives us a new name and a white stone. He will give them a white stone, and he's going to give them a new name. And again, very important that, you know, each one of us, that we have this opportunity to receive this new name. Well, back in the Bible, when people would be converted, God would oftentimes give them a new name. Sarai got a new name. Abram got a new name. Abraham. Cephas got a new name. Peter. Saul got a new name. Paul. And so what would happen is when, in that day when people would become a Christian or a follower of Christ, their life was so radically changed, it was like this rebirth. And so they called it, and Jesus called it, being born again. And this comes, this is again tied to, connected to the, the doctrine of regeneration. This doctrine that says Jesus Christ, not only did he die and rise for the forgiveness of our sins, but he died and he rose again to make us new people. He rose again to make us different people. He didn't just come into our life to make us a forgiven version of who we were. He came into our life to make us a forgiven and changed version of your new self, of your new transformed person. He came to make you new. And in Christ, you are totally transformed. You have become a new creation in Christ God, in Christ Christ Jesus, your Lord. You are made new. He has completely transformed your life. And in that transformation, your identity has also then been completely transformed and made altogether new. Yes. Who you are. So you, listen church, as a, as a born again believer in Christ, you are no longer defined by the things that you have done. You are no longer defined by the things that were done to you. You are now defined by what Jesus has done for you. Amen. And that makes us a brand new creation. You are clean. Let me prophesy this over you. You are clean. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. You have been made new. You are who God has called you to be. And the old nature is no longer there. The old nature is gone. The new nature has come. You are filled with the spirit of the living God where he would empower you. 
And he empowers you to, to give you a new mind. And in that new mind, you begin to have new desires, new thoughts, new, new things happen. You, now, it's weird. Now you want to read the Bible. Now the Bible becomes something good. You, you know what? I want to meet with God's people. I'm looking for God's people. I want to stop sinning. I want to stop doing the things I shouldn't do. I want to start learning. I want to start growing. I want to change. Yes. Come on, how many experienced this when you became a Christian? Oh, you know what? I, I, man, I never wanted to read the Bible before, but now I don't know why, but I want to read the Bible. I never wanted to go to church before, but here I sit in church and I was singing. Come on, I remember the first time I lifted my hands. I thought that was crazy before, and now I find myself. All these things I thought were crazy, I'm doing them. What has happened? You know what's happened? You've been born again. You have been born again. You have become a new creation. You are a new person, and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in you. And, and, and because of that absolute change, I mean, it's like an earthquake, that, this cataclysmic, tectonic shift that happens in our soul. And to mark that, you know what God does? He gives us a new name. He gives us this new name because we're different people. And that's what would happen with Christians in that day. Oftentimes, as they became followers of Christ, they would get a brand new name, a Christian name. You know the name Antipas? That... Many, in fact, most of the commentaries that I read and most of the background that I read about that was that most of them believed that Antipas was not his name given to him at birth. Antipas was the name given to him at his new birth. Antipas means one who suffers in place of another. So God gives us a, a Christian name, a way that he sees us that's different in our new identity. My mom and dad gave me the name Mark. Now, when I became a Christian, God didn't change my name, so to speak. But in Christian meaning, Mark, my mom and dad did not know this, Mark means mighty warrior. God doesn't see me as Mark anymore. Whether I believe it or not, whether I can walk in that or not, and please, I am not saying this pridefully. This is really hard to say in front of y'all. But, but God, when God sees me, God sees me as mighty warrior. That's my born-again name. That's who God sees me as. He gives us a new name, a new name by which we can live. It's not by the old identity. It's by the new identity. It's by who God says we are. And Jesus says in this, listen, I will give you, if you will walk with me, I will give you a new name, a new identity, and I will mark that new identity by giving you a new name. Come on, amen? amen. And he goes on to say that he will then give them a white stone. Now, again, some debate in this. You can decide what you want this to mean. There's a number of different things that it could mean. All of the, I think it could mean all of them. But in that day, what would happen is that the, the wealthy people, when they put on a big event at one of the theaters or one of the, the, um, the, the big arenas, what they would do is they would, as tickets, they would hand out small white stones to people. And that small white stone was the person's ticket to admission. So they could get into the arena with a white stone. And there are those who think this is a reference to heaven. That when we come to Jesus Christ, when we belong to Jesus Christ, that we are given a white stone and we have now a first class ticket into the kingdom of God. Some say 
that the meaning of this is that in that day, people would stand before a judge if they were convicted of a crime and their arguments would be made. And when the verdict was to be declared, there were two stones that were there. There was a black stone and a white stone. And if the white stone was, was, was revealed, then that person was declared innocent. If the black stone was revealed, that person was declared guilty and they were charged, they were arrested, and they were locked up. The white stone meant that that person was acquitted, that there was no guilt found in them, and that they were free to, get, to go. And so again, there are those who then believe this is referring to the death of Jesus Christ because our sins have been atoned for. Our, uh, we are now seen in the righteousness of Christ. We are justified in the sight of God. And as a result, we are no longer punished. We are set free. There is, we have been acquitted. There is no guilt in us. We've been given freedom. Amen? Amen. The last one, and I, I want to share this one with you just because I, I, I love this perspective. In that day, in Pergamum, there was a, um, a, a ritual where in, in Pergamum, there's still, you'll still see them today if you look at pictures. Lots and lots of big white stones. The, the, the landscape's littered with them. Well, one of the traditions that they had was that back in that day, when the families or two families would come into conflict, two families that were, that were supposed to be close, what would happen is the two patriarchs would come together and these two men would come and they would represent the family. They would represent the tribe, the kin, you know, whatever it was at that time. And they would come together and the two men would form a truce. They, they would come together and make an agreement. They would literally, out of that truce would come what they called in that day a covenant. And they would make this covenant that basically said, we are going to be committed to doing life together as people. We are going to be committed to not allowing ourselves to be broken apart, but we are going to love one another. We are going to join together in a covenant that says we are going to serve one another, and we're going to take care of one another, and we're going to look out for one another. And these two patriarchs would bring these two, these stones, these half stones, they would, they would break a stone in half, and the two patriarchs would take that stone, and those two half stones would be handed down from generation to generation generation to generation, and the next generation would be taught of the covenant that these stones represented. And so then generations later, when their grandchildren or great-great-great-great-grandchildren would have conflict between the families, the patriarchs in that day would take these two stones, these two halves, and they would come together, and they would put these stones together to make one stone and say, this is the way that our fathers made covenant that we would live together, that we would come together and that we would stand together, and that we would love together. This is how our fathers wanted us to live. This is the covenant that they made, and this is the covenant that's been handed down to us from generation to generation, that our fathers wanted us to live in unity. Our fathers wanted us to live as one. And the patriarchs would come together like that, and the stone that had been handed down from generation to generation would come together, and they would make this stand together that all the conflict is gone. And I, again, what God would be saying here to us is that, you know, we are sinners. You and I, we are rebels. We are guilty. We have been found guilty. But God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ and he says, I will make a covenant with you. You will be my people and I will be your God. I'm gonna love you and I'm gonna bless you and I'm gonna care for you forever. And I'm asking that you would trust me in that, that you would trust me to care for you and that in this, you would do your best to keep the covenant that was made with your the, the father and that I 
would keep the covenant that I made with Father. And together we would come, and when there's conflict, we'd bring the stones together, and we would stand in this covenant, and we would make a difference, and it would make a difference eternally. It would make a difference in that generation. But church, it would also make a a difference in the generations that were to come when that covenant legacy was handed down from generation to generation to generation. And I believe that that is part of what God is talking about here, that he is referencing this covenant that he has made and calling us to hand this, to, this covenant down from generation to generation to generation. Amen. Yet, in, in, again, in closing, the biggest problem in all of this church that we have is how do you see Jesus? How do you see him? How you see him will influence how you follow him. How do you see him? Do you, do you see Jesus as, as John declares in, in Revelation 1? Do you see him as the resurrected, exalted king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the God of all creation? Or do you see him as a humble Galilean peasant? Or do you see him as the one who's been resurrected from the dead, the one who overcame death, hell, and the grave, the one who ascended into this world and then back to his throne in heaven? Do we see him as God declares he is, ruling and reigning as God Almighty? He is the omniscient one. He is all-knowing. There is nothing that he is not aware of and nothing he doesn't know. He knows everything that's going on at the church here at Pergamum. He knows the false teachers. He knows the sexual sin. He knows what they're doing. He knows who's been teaching what and what they've been learning that they should not be learning what they've been doing that they should not be doing he sees Antipas he sees the, the, the man who was sacrificed in a bowl for the people he saw the suffering he saw the altar of Zeus he saw the throne of Satan that was in this place he saw the image of the emperor he saw the temple of Zeus and Dionysus he saw that and he knew exactly what was going on and in the midst of all of that Jesus Christ is revealed by the word of God as the exalted king of all kings. He is the one who comes, the only one that comes in a resurrected life for you and for me. He is a warrior king and he comes with the sword of the word of God to bring justice and conviction of sin and a new life. Church, if you're struggling with apostasy, it's because you don't have a big enough view of Jesus and who he really is. And we just need to ask, Lord God, Give me a bigger view. Jesus is not any longer the humble, marginalized, Galilean peasant. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not somebody who had some nice things to say. He's not somebody who had some unique insight. Church, he is the crucified, resurrected, king of all kings, Lord of all lords. He is God almighty. He, listen, and it's not, it's not, the, it's not the emperor. You know what the emperor today represents is the culture. Listen, the culture is not our savior. I don't care how green you go. You're not going to save the world that way. The culture will never be our Savior, will never be Lord. The culture will never be God because Jesus Christ is the only one. And it is Jesus Christ alone who rules and reigns. And he rules and reigns over all people, over all times, over all places, over all churches, over all religions, over all cultures. Jesus Christ is King of all kings and Lord of all lords. And there is no other but him. Amen?
worship team. Worship team, come on back up. You know, the sad story of Pergamum is this. At some point, the apostasy won. At some point, the apostasy won their hearts. Their flesh began to overrule. Not one church in Pergamum today. Nothing but a legacy of apostasy. And church, the great myth is that that could never happen to us. That that could never happen to, to our family. That that could never happen to our church. That that could never happen to me. It's a myth. You see, the story of Pergamum is that it can happen to us. Church, the story of Pergamum is that it may have already happened to many of us. I was praying about it, and I wrote, you know, apostasy is like cancer. It starts off in such a little place, in such a little way, and, and nobody knows that it's there. We don't even know that it's there. But the apostasy begins to grow, and it begins to eat us from the inside out. It begins to destroy us. And for many people, they don't know that the cancer is there until it starts to reflect itself in such a way, and it's too late. And apostasy grows in us often the same way. It just starts off with a little deal. It's not a big deal. It's not a big thing. I know the Bible says this, but it's not a big deal. Apostasy is like a cancer. And it wants to destroy us. It wants to rob, steal, kill. In church... If we don't stick close with Jesus, if we don't maintain an ongoing personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, let me tell you, anything is possible. Anything is possible. So you know what God says? Repent. Repent. Oh, are you, you're struggling in that? Okay, I understand. Repent. Oh, you've been believing this over here. And, and, okay, repent. Oh, you, you've been looking for palatable Christianity. Okay, repent. He sees, he already knows. Are oh, you struggling in that place of sexual sin? Repent. I'll fill you up, I'll help you. Is there a place, what is it in your life that you need to repent about? Where is it that you're wrong and God is right? And today God's saying, I want you to just acknowledge that. I want to help you. He's not trying to do these things to us. Listen, God does not do things to us. God does things for us. And he's looking to do something for you. Because as we said in the communion service, this is personal. What he did, he did it for you. And this is what he's now, therefore, calling you to. 
Will you bow your heads with me? Lord, oh Lord, you're such a good God. Even in a difficult message, God, you have such a way to shine light in our hearts, light into those difficult places, to bring those places of correction to a place of blessing. God, how do you do it? I just can't wait for eternity to just find all these things out. Until then, Lord, I just trust that you can because you said so. I just trust who you are because you told us. I trust, Lord God, my life into your hand because you said that's the safest place for it. I trust my circumstances to you because you said you can deal with it. I trust you, Lord, to supply manna. I trust you, Lord God, in my new name. I trust you, Lord, with my life. And so I repent of those places of unfaithfulness. Those places where I've resisted you. Those places where I didn't like. I didn't like what you said. And so, God, I, I rejected you. I, I don't want to rush through this moment. While you got your heads bowed and your eyes closed, just take a moment to personally think where is God calling you to repentance? So he says, repent. We're going to sing through the song. And if he's calling you to, the altar is open. Do you have to come to the altar if you repent? No. no. You can repent right where you are. You, God loves you. But there are those who God does call to make a specific stand at a specific moment to say, I just need to go to the altar as an acknowledgement that this is my moment. So as we sing through this for the first time, just stay seated for a moment. Not gonna take long, I promise. But if you need the altar, if you just need to come, I, this is a personal time between you and him. I just wanna open this up for a moment and, and give you the opportunity to say, okay, God, I'm serious. And if that's you, then just come find a place to kneel.
with this just kid. Think about it. Joni just mentioned this to me, and it's so true. With repentance comes a, an increased measure of grace. And that grace is there to deal with the repentant heart, but it's also there to strengthen that new place in that new place in our heart to help us to overcome that which we are repenting of. Come on, isn't God good? And we're going to sing through this again. I, I just want to say to each one of you, I, I love you. I do. I love you. And I, you are such a blessing to me. And I, I hope that you receive the message with the love that I certainly intended and I prepared for with that. But now, what you do with it is up to you. But I want to encourage you. I say this to you every week. Church is not over. Church is about to begin. So go out there and go be the church. Go be those that Jesus purchased. Go be the blood-bought, the redeemed. Go be the church. Amen? Come on, let's sing through this one more time and you can be dismissed.
God bless you, church. Go be the church.